Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Linda for inviting me to this wonderful conference and all the great work that, that she's doing. This topic, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, is near and dear to my heart. I uh, basically got into this type of medicine because I suffered from both of those and then ended up ultimately having Lyme disease, went into heart failure, cardiologist, I basically couldn't walk three steps, I couldn't lay flat, and cardiologist said, well, you may get some improvement over the years. A year later, totally normal. He couldn't believe it. But So what we'll talk about here and why LDN is a key treatment for, for these patients. So what is chronic fatigue syndrome definition? I think it's a ridiculous diagnosis and uh, and doesn't say anything about the underlying cause. But we, when we find, when we do initial lab work on people, we can pretty much pick out who has chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, or Lyme, and the severity. So some doctors say, oh, it's not real. Well, we can pick it out without talking to the patient. So basically, clinically evaluated unexplained persistent fatigue, basically fatigue that lasts uh, more than six months, and concurrence of four or more of the following symptoms, impairment in short-term memory, sore throat, tender cervical lymph nodes, muscle pain, multi-joint pain, headaches of a new type, unrefreshing sleep, and post-exertional malaise. A lot of those will only occur early in the illness, typically, such as sore throat, uh, tender lymph nodes, joint pain. And again, if they have those, you start thinking Lyme disease as well. So fibromyalgia definition is basically having 11 out of 18 tender points, and there is nothing special about those tender points. Basically, they picked them, and they said, oh, here's a new definition of fibromyalgia. So patients that are basically able to get an antidepressant now, um, and it's ridiculous. You can just ask the patient, do you have muscle pain? Yes. Okay, there you go. There's your, there's your diagnosis, along with... If they want, especially with sleep disorder, fatigue, and if they get worse with exercise. So myalgic encephalomyelitis is a better definition, but typically not used in the United States, which has post-exertional fatigue, neurological impairment, which is the brain fog, uh, pain or sleep disturbance, immune gastrointestinal impairment, sore throat, tender lymph nodes, poor immunity, abdominal dysfunction or food sensitivities, and then energy metabolism uh, impairments, which they uh, classify under that orthostatic hypotension, palpitations, air hunger. If you, uh, someone says they have air hunger, it's almost always babesia. Um, low body temp, we'll see patients come in, with, you know, temperature 95. We check everyone's metabolism and the chronic fatigue, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome patients uh, typically are about 25% lower in the calories burned per day. So a lot of weight issues and they just have no metabolism. So problems with the definition, again, they are research definitions 
and exclude the majority of patients, doesn't address the underlying cause, promotes treatments really limited to symptomatic treatment. I mean, most doctors, and they say, well, all the labs are normal. Well, if you do a CBC and a chem panel, of course it's gonna be normal. And they end up treating their high cholesterol. It, it, it's ridiculous. Um, so it's also a disincentive to determine the underlying abnormalities. And we'll go through some studies and shows that you know, 90 plus percent of these patients have a chronic infection. How many standard doctors actually look at something other than you know, just the basic labs and look for that infection? Very few. So basically they're overlapping syndromes, uh, CFIDs, fibromyalgia, um, multiple chemical sensitivity, uh, Gulf War syndrome, overlapping syndromes that have the same underlying pathophysiology. Many unanswered questions, certainly. It's a vicious cycle, and we'll, we'll, we'll go through that. Poorly treated in, in the US, or actually around the world. However, they are very treatable conditions. If the CDC criteria is met, the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome carries a very high specificity and is associated with numerous documented abnormalities. So, probably not saying how bad the name is, but it still doesn't mean it's a and uh, basically a fake illness, it's all in their head. Again, we, we can pick it out on blood tests about 80, 90% of the time. So, so basically, how do you quickly uh, diagnose it? Unexplained fatigue, if someone's fatigued uh, and they complain also of brain fog or unrestful sleep, diffuse achiness, lots of bowel dysfunction, IBS, unexplained neuropathy, then we start uh, basically, the old neuropathy patients, the more severe, the more likely it's Lyme. Recurrent or persistent infections like flu feelings, post-exertional malaise. So I ask them, do you feel better or worse with exercise? If they feel better, it's probably low thyroid. If they feel worse, you're looking at chronic fatigue syndrome and then something causing that, a chronic infection. Uh, so the dysfunctions, the dysfunctions that are present, you get basically the immune system, which is where LDN comes in, and if you fix the immune system, that is gonna allow you to actually heal and, uh, and cure this disease. I hate to say cure, but put it in remission. And, uh, and basically all things come back to the immune system. Uh, disordered sleep, hormonal deficiencies that typically aren't picked up on standard blood tests because they're still in the normal range. So you have a normal range, 95% of the people are normal, only the highest and lowest 2.5% are considered abnormal. So what if they're lowest 5%, lowest 10%, they say, oh, you're normal. So in the, they basically don't get treatment. Um, nutritional deficiencies, uh, chronic infections, mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, they did a muscle biopsy in fibromyalgia patients that looked at the mitochondria, they just don't work. And basically, they're infected, uh, and they have low metabolism. They don't generate any energy, don't generate any heat. Coagulation defect, which is a uh, heparin, is a wonderful treatment for these patients. So basically, in response to the chronic infection, the body lays down fibrin on the vessel walls, trying to wall off that infection. But now oxygen, that usually takes two seconds to get into the cells, now can take up to five minutes. So the cells are starving for oxygen. Also, nutrients can't get through, hormones can't get through. Oftentimes, you start on heparin, and all the treatments that didn't work before now start working. Uh, gastrointestinal dysfunction. Uh, one study found that it was 
82%, I believe, of patients with Lyme have SIBO. Um, associated conditions, I won't go through all these, but uh, you just see so many other things that, that are associated, like how could they have 30 different diagnoses or is it just one common cause? So also autoimmune diseases, when you get the, basically the body, the Th1, Th2 immune system, it's shifted like this, and so you get a lot of autoimmunity, or they'll say pre-lupus, you have mixed connective tissue disease, we can't call it that, they, you know, they basically go back and forth, oh no, well, you don't have it now. And so a lot of low-level autoimmune uh, uh, diagnoses. Restless leg syndrome, again, weight gain, because of low metabolism, increased thirst, low adrenal function, low body temp, insulin resistance, finding chronic infections significant cause of insulin resistance. So we're starting a study at our office looking at metabolic syndrome patients, so inability to lose weight, insulin resistance, hypertension, and babesia is coming up very commonly. So the weight problem uh, in this country may actually be infectious. Uh, yeast overgrowth, menstru irregular menstrual periods, sleep disturbance, brain fog, shortness of breath, confusion, especially of names. So basically, uh, um, let's look at the impact of chronic fatigue syndrome. People say, oh, they're a little tired. They're just, they, you know, just they need to get up and uh, exercise more and eat a better diet. This study conducted in, in Australia, published in the Medical Journal of Australia, uh, invested the impact of CFS on patients' lives. They found 43% of patients that met the criteria were disabled to the degree uh, that they were unable to work. A five-year study entitled Illness and Disability in Danish Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Patients and a five-year follow-up concluded CFS patients exhibit severe long-term uh, functional impairment and substantial improvement is uncommon less than 6%. So that's with standard medical care. American study in which 64% uh, of patients reported a certain degree of improvement but only 2% experience of recovery with 40% remaining uh, unable to work. Uh, a uh, review article entitled Prognosis of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, uh, a systemic review. Uh, the review of 26 studies found that adults who met the CDC criteria have poor prognosis with less than 10% recovering uh, when the majority do not improve over time with standard medical care. So they did a prospective study, again, with standard treatment, 146 fibromyalgia patients compared to standard medical care to standard medical care plus cognitive behavior therapy. Uh, standard medical care includes muscle relaxants, antidepressants, NSAIDs, passive stretching. Study found only 12% of the patients improved. So why are these conditions so poorly treated? Um, typical medications used include antidepressants, non-steroidals, muscle relaxants, and sleep meds, and basically only symptomatic treatments. Um, and many doctors don't believe it's real uh, because if it's, if it's, they think, well, if it's not, it must not be real because I can't treat it. I don't have the time to treat it, so it's very much a uh, kind of a with doctors and egos, they want to be, hey, there's, if this is real, I, I should be able to treat it. But because they can't, they just go, oh, it's, it's not a real illness. 
So health insurers can avoid paying for treatment and testing if they can make believe these symptoms aren't, aren't real. 75% of those affected are female. So again, it kind of lends to that, oh, you're just a stressed out housewife and you know, not, not really uh, a, a real illness. And these conditions can't be treated in the average eight minute visit. So now with healthcare reform, I mean, that's getting worse. So uh, I don't, it may get worse before it gets better. So quantum fatigue and fibromyalgia is a mix of many different processes with a common endpoint. So there's measurable hypothalamic, pituitary, immune, and coagulation dysfunction. And each problem may trigger another, another problem. So I don't know if you can see this here, um, but so basically there's certainly a genetic predisposition for these illnesses, and oftentimes a triggering event, and uh, which may be a car accident um, or emotional trauma, such as a divorce, uh, they all of a sudden get a, a viral infection, then all of a sudden they're never the same since. And what you see is basically a whole cascade and becomes chicken or the egg. So what you really need to do is, is treat each of these different uh, abnormalities to get the patient better. So just trying to do you know, antidepressants or get them sleeping, those may help, but you're missing all these other parts. So again, they're very treatable conditions. Uh, this is the Teitelbaum study, randomized, double-blind, uh, placebo-controlled, when multiple dysfunctions are treated, including nutritional deficiencies, disordered sleep, hormonal deficiencies, infections, and mitochondrial dysfunction, 57% of the patients had complete resolution of symptoms and 39 had incomplete but significant improvement. So basically 96% of patients had significant improvement. And you can see here, it's the data is basically what you would think in terms of the controls in the middle, the light blue, where bell-shaped curve, and then the active uh, patients in the dark blue. So you can see majority much better and some better. So um, uh, we had a study published in the uh, Journal of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. We had 500 consecutive patients on a computerized outcome assessment, demonstrated again this multi-system treatment. 94% of patients had overall improvement by the fourth visit, 75 noting significant overall improvement, 62 had substantial. The average energy level and sense of well-being doubled by the fourth visit. We then did a further study analysis of, uh, with 40 physicians over, uh, over 5,000 patients and basically had the pretty close to the same data. Uh, prior to treatment at our office, they had seen on average 7.2 physicians uh, for their condition without, any, in, without significant improvement. So really, look at it at, at a component approach to, to attack the, these patients, to get um, these patients better, because it gets, can get very complicated. But basically, one is when we say stabilize the patient, hey, make sure they don't, uh, have, they're in pain, uh, get them sleeping. Component two, mitochondrial enhancement. So you want to make sure that uh, they have all the mitochondrial nutrients. Balance the hormones, very important. And about 90, 90 plus percent of patients with chronic fatigue syndrome fibromyalgia have low thyroid. But the problem is their TSH is normal. So the, it basically goes undetected the overwhelming majority of time. Only a fraction of the patients actually get adequate thyroid treatment. 
Um, address unique etiologies, again, the coagulation is one thing I, I talked about. Uh, also heavy metals. And then maintenance. So that's just basically broken down into, again, how, how we look at these patients. So really looking at, if you have to pick, okay, what is the really the main cause? Because you, again, you get all these chicken or the eggs that get basically infection causing low immunity, which then causes more infections, cause sleep disorder, which then makes everything worse. So it, it becomes a chicken or the egg. But the immune system is the one thing that, that needs to be addressed, and that's LDN is certainly a first-line treatment. Uh, it's at TH1 to TH2 imbalance. Um, so immune modulatory treatment. So again, the TH1 is too low. Natural killer cells are, are too low. Basically, the body keeps trying to kill the infection with TH2, which just causes inflammation and symptoms without killing the infection. So uh, we're going to look at viruses, many possible, Epstein-Barr, HHV6, CMV, enterovirus. Um, did their problems start with, uh, with an infection such as mono? Uh, do they have swollen lymph nodes? We think of that. Now, oftentimes, though, is that the reason they have these viral infections is they have something else suppressing the immune system. So these are all opportunistic viruses. So when the immune system drops, that's when they come out. Because how could a person be infected? Like, okay, you know, they're walking down the street. Oh, they happen to get HHV6 and Epstein-Barr and CMV and Lyme, Babesia, you know, all, all these different things. What's the common denominator is that it's suppressing the immune system. So with, we used to go after the viruses first, but we're kind of skipping that step because now we're finding the viruses will take care of themselves if you get rid of the bacterial infection. But is uh, HHV6 in one Toya study, 70% of chronic fatigue syndrome fibromyalgia patients had HHV6. And then looking at here, basically, the studies on HHV6 and chronic fatigue syndrome, you can see all the studies that were positive, overwhelming majority of them, except for two, showed HHV6 infection in these illnesses. Now, how many standard doctors check for HHV6? Um, not many. So 83% of the studies demonstrated that the majority of patients will have HHV6. How about mycoplasma? So bacterial infection, 68% of these patients were positive by PCR. 63% uh, uh, of patients had active mycoplasma versus 9% of controls, and 50% of fermentans versus 0% of controls. So a lot of infections going on. And this study, 52% were positive for mycoplasma, 31% positive for HHV6 and 7.5% for chlamydia pneumonia versus 6, 9, and 1% of normals. So talk about Lyme disease. Um, CDC estimates that yearly reported cases are tenfold of what was previously thought, and it is tenfold of that at least. It is just exploding. We are finding it in so many patients, and even if they're just from depression, to you know, basically bedridden, but the doctors just say, oh, we can't find anything wrong with you, and they just don't do any further testing. And uh, so standard, the standard method that is recommended by the Infectious Disease Society of America, 
basically misses 40 to 90% of Lyme patients. And there has to be, the way you see that it's spreading, it can't just be ticks. So there are multiple modes of transmission, including ticks, mosquitoes, fleas, and sexually transmitted. They had one study where they took hamsters and with Lyme, put mosquitoes in there with them, and then uh, put the mosquitoes then in a, a group of healthy hamsters. 20% turned out positive for Lyme. What was the conclusion of the study? Mosquitoes are unlikely to be a significant vector for Lyme. So patients with chronic Lyme, severely ill, multi-system illness, again, um, they can have damage to any, any organ system. Antibiotics alone, I mean, they certainly, antibiotics are, can be an important part, but if you don't fix the immune system, they're just gonna be on antibiotics for years. Um, and so we're doing a lot more immune modulation um, and, and using a lot of things similar to L LDN should be a first-line treatment for all these patients. The longer one is ill with Lyme, the more difficult to treat. Uh, advanced uh, lab culture, hygienics, and then we talked about the uh, uh, earlier today, another new exciting test that I'm, I'm excited to try. So when do you expect Lyme disease? Uh, really, the more severe chronic fatigue syndrome, the more neurologic autonomic uh, symptoms, brain fog. You know, some people just go, I, don't, I can deal with the fatigue, I just want my brain back. And the more strange the symptom, the more likely it's Lyme. Doctor's like, I've never seen this before, I don't what is it? Think Lyme disease. So markers of immune dysfunction, and these are key to run on anyone who's, who's basically fatigued and you suspect that they have chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, low natural killer cell function. So normals, in the studies, less than 30. Quest says eight is the lower limit of normal. And a lot of these patients come in at two, three, four, five, maybe some eight, 10, 12, which Again, that's all, they're all low, so really below, it should be above 30. Uh, and there's a new test by Quest, uh, immune cell function, it measures the ATP of, in the white cells. And what we find is that majority of time, these patients, they can't make any energy. Their white cells just don't function anymore. So that, that's a new test that's, um, that's actually very good. Low CD57, um, it's better through LabCorp although we've kind of replaced it with the Quest test. Elevated C4A, another marker that you should run on basically most of your patients that have significant symptoms of, of fatigue. You'll find that high shows that high TH2, where the natural killer cell function shows low. And I gotta speed up here. Uh, so low, the natural killer cell uh, activity is an objective marker for disabling chronic fatigue syndrome. So you may have some disability cases. Um, this is again talking about nine, up to 90% of patients with this illness have abnormal clotting. And I won't go into how to diagnose that, but uh, so again, immune modulation, increasing that Th1 and decreasing Th2, boosting natural killer cell function, lowering inflammatory cytokines. LDN is a no-brainer uh, unless they're on narcotics. Uh, thymosin alpha-1 is uh, nice. It's been approved basically in 37 countries, and it's available compounded here. If uh, someone needs to have a hard time finding it, give me a call. 
gamma globulin, ozone, we'd love ozone, uh, LDA and LDI, um, which basically was used originally for foods to eliminate that, that immune response to foods, but now we're using it for Lyme disease uh, and other co-infections. Antivirals, antibiotics, transfer factor, and if you go back to research nutritionals there, they have a, a great transfer factor. Uh, mushroom extracts, isoprenazine, again, not available in the United States, but you can get it compounded. It's a broad spectrum immune booster and extremely safe. GCMAF, uh, high dose B12, it's not for deficiency. You give about you know, 25 to 50,000 uh, micrograms of B12 to modulate the immune system. We use leukine and neupogen um, for these patients, heparin. So LDN and fibromyalgia pilot study, 12 fibromyalgia patients, placebo-controlled, single-blind crossover, uh, daily self-reported symptoms, baseline in two weeks, uh, and LDN for eight weeks. Primary outcomes of self-reported overall symptom severity, uh, secondary symptoms and uh, mechanical pain testing Q2 weeks. Uh, the LDN reduced the symptoms by 30%. Um, and that's, I think, like some patients, certainly like anything else, worked better in some patients. Kind of if uh, it probably wasn't, a lot of those patients probably either didn't, didn't react and then a lot of them reacted very well. Then it becomes of an average. An elevated SED rate actually predicted their response. In this study, 32 fibromyalgia patients, randomized double-blind crossover, uh, daily self-reported symptoms, primary outcome, uh, self-reported overall fibromyalgia severity. So LDN reduced the fibromyalgia symptoms by 28% versus 18% with placebo. That's a really high placebo rate when these patients really don't respond to placebo because nothing works with them, they, so they have really a nocebo. So that's very strange to see that high of a placebo uh, response. Uh, associated with improved satisfaction in life and uh, improved mood, 32% uh, met the criteria for response. Um, so that's it. So now we'll, we'll talk about LDN and thyroid disorders and how really the overwhelming majority of patients that have any inflammation, chronic pain, chronic infection, um, uh, difficulty losing weight, have been dieting, are actually low thyroid, but again, the standard TSH does not pick it up. So the typical thing, I think, is usually with LDN, okay, we'll talk about autoimmune thyroiditis, which is uh, basically Hashimoto's, where, they, where the body's basically attacking the thyroid. And of course, LDN is the first line treatment for that. Also, selenium can help. And then really getting rid of that underlying infection is the key. Same with Graves' disease. So basically, the antibodies against, uh, if, they're, if they don't hit the TSH receptor, you get Hashimoto's. If they attach to the TSH receptor, then you get high. So basically, it's the same illness, but one basically go in, in opposite directions. So we have a, a, a lot of people that, you know, basically say the doctor says you have to get your thyroid out, um, get it ablated or uh, removed. And with the help of LDN and other things and looking for the chronic infection, you just put them on a little beta blocker or methimazole for a bit, and they don't have to get their thyroid taken out because 
But the doctors will tell them, oh, there's no problem. We'll just take it out and just give you replacement thyroid. Again, average weight gain 27 pounds because they, they, it is not normal. In fact, a study showed that you cannot, you cannot get normal tissue levels by just giving T4, which is the standard, uh, which is standard treatment. And this was a rat study where they took the thyroid out and they could actually slice it in, into the tissues. So Hashimoto is generally described as Th1 dominant and Graves as Th2, although the Th1, Th2 is a very simple oversimplification, so it can really be either. And so here, again, associated with, initiated by chronic infection and gut dysbiosis. Also, modern diet certainly plays a role. Gluten sensitivity is huge with these patients. So if you get them, get them off the gluten, you can do a food allergy panel, and you'll find that these patients have leaky gut, where all these big proteins are getting in. So you really have to clean up the gut with probiotics and um, basically things that, that lower the gut inflammation. Um, so toxic metal, hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and cortisol generate decrease the Th1, Th2 ratio. Uh, although conflicting data on that, testosterone generally increases. So just a reminder of how the thyroid works. So thyroid-releasing hormone produced in the hypothalamus um, and, and then basically goes to the pituitary to secrete thyroid-simulating hormone TSH, which goes to the thyroid, tells it to secrete T4, which then you hope goes into the cell and converts to T3, but it can also go to reverse T3, which blocks the thyroid. So T3 and reverse T3 are the same thing, but backward. So T3 goes to the receptor, stimulates you have thyroid effect. Reverse T3 goes there, nothing happens. So if you read the uh, endocrine textbooks, it says inactive metabolite, but actually it blocks the thyroid. And studies, uh, I think we'll get into some, but you can basically infuse reverse T3 in, into people, metabolism drops. Uh, it reduces T4, T3 conversion. Um, and so check reverse T3 in patients. Although I don't like the, uh, the new assays, you, should, you used to use the RIA, but they switched more to a GCMS or LCMS, which is supposedly more accurate, but it just kind of crunched everyone together. So, and so now anything in that high normal range of reverse T3 um, is the patient basically needs thyroid. So, uh, hypothalamic, so wait, well, what are the steps required for thyroid activity? Well, you have to have hypothalamic pituitary function. Then again, that secretes TSH. And then, uh, then the thyroid function make, uh, secretes T4. Conversion, then this must be transported into the cell. And I wrote a review paper on this showing that uh, patients with chronic illness do not transport uh, thyroid into the cell very well. Uh, anyone with uh, basically decreased energy output, diabetics had about 50% reduction, especially in T4, which is why one reason why T3 works so much better in these patients. Um, you have to have down receptor binding, downstream activation. Uh, and so these weren't supposed to come up uh, initially, but so when you look at what, what are, how common are these problems in these steps? So if you look at what, what, do, what do we check with when we do uh, basically a thyroid panel? All we're doing is checking thyroid function. So that's actually the least common cause of low thyroid. 
when you have all these other problems, hypothalamic pituitary dysfunction, secretion of TSH, and actually there's now, uh, we're trying to develop a bioactive TSH. People who are ill, they secrete TSH that is not very active. Uh, has to, again, convert to T4 to T3, uh, transport into the cell. Like, for instance, you'll find uh, depressed patients have a low normal TSH, high normal T4. And the thought was, hey, they're a little hyperthyroid. No, they're low. That's a marker for low, actually. So they have pituitary dysfunction causing low TSH and the high T4 because it's not getting into the cell. And did I lose it? There. Um, so those patients need T3, and they are not high. Um, again, they need thyroid. The STAR report, largest study ever done on antidepressants, showed that T3 was a better antidepressant than antidepressants with, with less side effects. Uh, so again, standard traditional way to diagnose low thyroid based on elevation of TSH. So the thought is we're taught in medical school that thyroid's easy. Basically, if the thyroid levels drop, the TSH increases. Thyroid levels are normal, TSH is normal. If you have high thyroid, TSH is suppressed. Problem is this misses 80 to 90% of people. So studies show that in any inflammation, which is immune dysfunction, there's a decrease in TSH and T3 and an increase in reverse T3 due to suppression and downregulation of deiodinase type 1. So deiodinase is what converts T4 into T3, um, but there's none in the pituitary. Pituitary is completely different than any tissue in the body, so it's like the worst marker to use for thyroid function. So um, an activation of D2 and D3. So you have increase when you have inflammation, immune dysfunction, all the, the basic tissues in the body have less T4 to T3 conversion, but the brain is actually upregulated, increases, which then makes the TSH go down. So what you see is an opposite effect with, uh, of the TSH. It's supposed to go up with, chronic, with basically with low thyroid, but it actually goes down. So the more severe the inflammation, immune dysfunction, the more severe the suppression. So chronic, they used to, it kind of what they used to call it, or still do, is called non-thyroidal illness. And say, well, okay, well, we agree with you that the tissues aren't getting enough thyroid, but, you know, get rid of the illness and, and that will go away. Hey, that's true, but you, they can't get rid of the illness until you fix the thyroid. You've got to get more thyroid to the tissue. Um, you'll see it occur with any emotional stress, depression, dieting. Actually, they found if people dieted, you basically you, you get less T4, T3 conversion, metabolism drops, and if you go back to normal eating, it still doesn't go back to normal. Um, so it's a long-term problem. People say, I've wrecked my metabolism. They have. Uh, weight and leptin resistance. Uh, check a leptin level on any of your uh, patients that are having difficulty losing weight. Oftentimes, they don't have any insulin resistance, but leptin levels very high. Um, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, exposure to toxins, pesticides. So in the presence of such, uh, such condition, there are reduced levels of thyroid in all the tissues except the pituitary. And that's what's being used to determine the thyroid levels. So LDN is a, is a great first start for all these patients. And basically explains here, I don't want to take too long, but type 2 deiodinase, this is the pituitary here on the left, 
And with chronic illness, any of those things in the middle, you see obesity, stress, inflammation, dieting, you get an increase in type 2 deitis, which increases the active T3, T4 to T3 in the pituitary. While the rest of the body actually is, the T1 is downregulated, so you get less T3, less active thyroid, more reverse T3 in the cells. The pituitary does not make reverse T3, so it doesn't have that problem. So again, the pituitary, more, the sicker you are, the more thyroid the pituitary gets, while the less thyroid the rest of the body gets. So it's just looking at, just as, as we age, you can see T4 levels and, and what is that in the middle? Free T3 levels go down, and then TSH also goes down. Well, wait a minute. Shouldn't TSH go up with the lower free T3? It doesn't. Um, just looking at it, as people get sicker, uh, to the right there, you can see what basically the different uh, tests do. So you see that basically with typical is testing TSH. Look how sick they have to be, and then they get basically low TSH at some point, but then the doctor says, oh, they're high thyroid. But what are the other uh, hormones doing at the same time? You basically get lower free t uh, T4, goes actually up because it doesn't get into the cell. So early illness or moderate illness, you'll see low normal TSH, high normal T4, low T3, and high reverse T3. And if you look at these graphs here, what would be the best marker for basically this low tissue level of thyroid? Well, it's not TSH. It would be reverse T3 looks like a good marker, and also free T3. So really looking at that ratio is probably the most sensitive marker. So accuracy, TSH, and fibromyalgia. So what they do is uh, TRH testing, so thyroid-releasing hormone from the hypo, basically the hypothalamus, uh, hypothalamic hormone to stimulate the pituitary. And it's a way of uh, determining hypothyroidism. And it was used quite frequently, but then you can't even get it commercially because they say, well, it's not needed. We have the, this ultra-sensitive TSH now. But they found that all of the patients with fibromyalgia were hypothyroid, the fact, despite the fact that standard thyroid function tests, including TSH, T4, and T3, were in the normal range. They found these patients had, again, low normal TSH that averaged 0.86. I know a lot of you know, doctors, you look at that, oh, this, your thyroid's good, your TSH is 0.86 versus 1.42 in normals with high normal T4, and low normal T3. So in your patients, really look for that and don't say, you know, when it looks like they have the high T4, low T3, 90 plus percent of doctors will, will just immediately just to come to the conclusion that, that they're, they're on the high side. But it isn't the case. So that's the study there in fibromyalgia. Study published in Lancet, actually we talked about Graves and Hashimoto's, they basically had, did thyroid biopsies on people that were just fatigued. They found 40% of those people had thyroid inflammation. Uh, but the majority of them did not have any anti-TPO or anti-thyroglobin antibodies. So they would go undetected. And, and so if you look at the studies also on um, Hashimoto's and whether, let's say, their, their levels are normal, treating Hashimoto's still is basically treating, lowering the antibodies is key, but there's beneficial effects of treating Hashimoto's with so-called normal levels. 
Um, let's see, this study also demonstrated because the TSH is a poor indicator of thyroid function, it does not predict um, who will respond to thyroid replacement. The authors state after treatment with thyroxine, I mean, they found it, which was good, but they treated with thyroxine. Clinical um, response was favorable, irrespective of the baseline TSH concentration. So the patient's respond was not correlated with the TSH. So the tests that 90 plus percent of doctors used had no correlation with who would respond to thyroid. Let's look at PMS. Okay, we see a lot of that. A study published in New England Journal. Uh, investigated the incidence of hypothyroidism uh, with PMS using, again, the more sensitive TRH testing. Found that 94% of patients had PMS uh, thyroid with TPS had thyroid dysfunction, uh, compared to zero of those who didn't. 65% uh, of the hypothyroid patients had tests that were in the normal range. And again, they will only be detected by TRH testing. Uh, another study on um, PMS, this found that 70% of women had abnormal TRH testing, abnormal um, thyroid levels. 70% uh, had abnormal thyroid levels with PMS. So it's not a typical symptom that many doctors think of being associated with low thyroid, but PMS is a big one. Uh, TSH and obesity. So here's a big thing. Patients come in, I can't lose weight, I know my thyroid's low, got cold hands, cold feet, um, and you know, my metabolism shot. Study in Journal of Endocrinology and Metabolism examined the accuracy of using TSH to, to uh, identify hypothyroidism in obese patients. They found that although the TSH levels were not significantly different, they had 36% of the patients had severe thyroid dysfunction. Again, wouldn't be picked up by standard TSH testing. So here's the, the TRH here, basically look at the difference between obese and non-obese. Um, insulin resistance in diabetics, uh, metabolic syndrome associated with significant inflammation, immune dysfunction, and resultant reduction in T4, T3 conversion and intracellular deficiency of T3, uh, and an increased conversion to that reverse T3. So all the studies are, uh, all the references are there. Um, and there's two review papers on this, which those references refer to. And you can go to the National Academy of Hypothyroidism for all the references. Um, uh, sorry, we didn't uh, uh, supply them here, but it's nahypothyroidism.org. So additionally, elevated insulin levels decreased D2, increased D2 act, uh, activity, so suppress the TSH. So what is this basically saying? That people with obesity have low thyroid. And again, it won't be detected by standard blood tests, but you do more investigation. If you do a TRH test, which again is difficult to obtain, you'll find that they're low. So when they keep telling you they basically have no metabolism, they're not lying. So this study showed diabetic individuals had a 42% reduction in T4 to T3 conversion. Investigation of T4 to T3 conversion in 50 diabetic patients compared to 50 non-diabetics. No difference in TSH and T4. Okay, that's the standard uh, test. But significant um, decrease in free T3. Uh, averaged 46% less than controls. So the free T3... Uh, uh, Free T4 ratio was 50% less in diabetics versus controls. The TSH failed to elevate despite the fact that the serum T3 was half of normal. 
But even being half a normal, it's still in the normal range, so they say you're fine. Another study by Sanders found that diabetics approximately, again, 50% reduction in T4, T3. So leptin, leptin is a major regulator of body weight. So when you gain weight, you're basically, fat cells secrete leptin to go to the brain and say, hey, stop, well, we don't need to store fat anymore. So that increased your metabolism, increased your thyroid, tells the body to burn fat, and basically um, uh, lowers appetite. But the problem is, is that many people, when they, gave, when they gave leptin to rats, they all lost weight. When they gave them to people, it didn't work. So what's going on? They found that most people that have a weight problem, they have a leptin resistance. And the problem is you gain weight because of leptin resistance, and then basically you, the, as you gain more weight, the leptin resistance is worse. So which is why you basically see a lot of people just continue to gain weight. So leptin also has to do, promotes Th1. So the fact that there's a resistance, it's, you get again, low Th1, high Th2. Uh, it's associated with a uh, decreased Th1, Th2 ratio. And, um, and again, results in a reduced cellular T3, but low TSH. So just with leptin there and immunity. So the metabolic effects of leptin resistance include, again, a diminished TSH, suppressed T4, T3 conversion, increase and reverse T3, increase in appetite, increase in insulin resistance, and basically inhibits fat breakdown. Uh, these contribute to a drop in, again, the TSH and T3 levels with, with dieting. Uh, LDN can improve the leptin resistance. TSH is not reliable. Leptin's also needed for the uh, body to produce TSH. So a TSH above, uh, a leptin above 12 makes a TSH unreliable. So LDN should be considered in all these patients that have a TS, uh, leptin above 12. Uh, physiologic reversal leptin resistance restored deionase activity except in the presence of elevated reverse T3. So thyroid hormone transport, which is really a major reason that all these labs look normal, but again, they're intracellularly low thyroid. In order to have biologic activity, T4 and T3 must cross the cellular membrane in the serum into the target cells, okay? Uh, it was thought to just diffuse, and that's what I was taught, and that's what's oftentimes still being taught, is that whatever's in the serum's in the cell. But who, doesn't matter what's in the serum, it matters what's, what's inside the cell. And they found that it actually, again, that, that whole thought was to be totally incorrect, that it's actually energy dependent. And each thyroid molecule has a different thyroid transporter. And it just so happens that a couple things, that the one for T4 is more metabolically affected with low energy states than the T3. So any condition with low cellular energy, which includes obesity, insulin resistance, diabetes, chronic infection, inflammation, you basically, the T4 does not get into the cell. The T3 is also blocked, but it gets in there better. So you have low cellular thyroid, even though the um, serum levels look totally fine. So conditions associated with mitochondrial dysfunction, so that's you know, basically low energy, uh, which is, can be caused from inflammation, chronic infection, um, just even obesity. So many things lower thyroid transport. So here, this show diabetes, there's all the references here, neuro, neurodegenerative diseases, just aging, 
chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, migraines, chronic infections, cardiovascular disease, and inflammation and chronic illness. So all those things associated with mitochondrial dysfunction, which then makes it so the thyroid doesn't get into the cell. But again, the pituitary is completely different. It has different transporters that are not actually, they will increase transport with low energy, uh, and so they act the opposite of the rest of the body. So again, specific separate transporters for T4 and T3. The transporter for T4 is much more energy dependent. So slight reduction in, in mitochondrial dysfunction results in declines of uh, uptake of T4 into the cell. So that's just showing here the green line is the T4. You can see just a little bit of drop in energy and the T4 transport goes way down. T3 is more linear and now reverse T3 and T4 are pretty much parallel. So what that shows is that you can use reverse T3 as a marker for poor transport into the tissue. And then shows with this occurring how accurate these tests are. So TSH, again, becomes very inaccurate very quickly. Um, and then T4 and T3. Again, the pituitary is totally different than every other cell in the body. It has different deiodinases, different high affinity thyroid receptors, different thyroid transporters that are not energy dependent. Uh, the pituitary will maintain or increase the uptake of T4 and T3 in low energy states, so the rest of the body will have significantly low. So uh, basically saying the TSH when serum levels were decreased by 50% due to increased pituitary um, uh, transport. So the pituitary is very good at pulling in the thyroid, but the rest of the body is not. This just shows how the pituitary and the rest of the body have different transporters. Um, these observations lend further support to the view that thyroid hormone transfer in the pituitary is regulated differently than the liver. So a lot of studies showing that. So uh, they basically gave reverse T3, was found to block cellular uptake of T3 by 34% and T4 by 23%. So again, if you have high reverse T3, blocks the transport into the cell. Serum levels will look fine, but it'll be low in the, in the, uh, inside the cells. When cell cultures are incubated with the serum from physiologically stressed individuals or dieting, they were shown, so basically took these cells, put the serum of stressed and dieting individuals, they found to be a dramatic reduction in the uptake of T4 by the cells that correlates with the degree of stress. So uh, when so we look at uh, basically stress is blocking T4, T3 conversion. So even just putting the serum from someone who's stressed in the cells were no effect if they didn't have stress. So again, serum from non-stress had no effect where those with significant physiologic stress had up to a 44% reduction in T4 uptake into the cell. It was shown that free T3 reversity ratio was the most accurate marker for reduced cellular uptake. So how do you tell if you have reduced thyroid transport? Remember, symptoms are the key. Um, and, and look for basically the thyroid symptoms. And we have our patients have a checklist. If any uh, doctor wants it, just give, give me a call at the office. We'll send it to you. Reverse T3, again, the transporter for reverse T3 has the same pharmacodynamics and kinetics as T4. So again, high reverse T3, basically reverse T3 isn't getting into the cell, either is T4.
So thyroid resistance, general term, thyroid has uh, less effect. So basically the thyroid in the blood's not working. Can be secondary to reverse, uh, reduce T4, T3 conversion, reduce transport, receptor blockage from toxins, or reduce translation, basically uh, thyroid binds, but nothing happens after. It's a clinical diagnosis, basically, but blood tests that we talked about will, will be a key. Can overcome the resistance by increasing levels of T3 or by removing the resistance. A lot of times it's hard to, let's say it's a chronic infection, to get at that. So LDN will help, again, bring back to normal that immune dysfunction that's causing the thyroid resistance. So here's showing basically immune activation, chronic fatigue syndrome suppresses activation of thyroid receptor. So another reason for um, basically resistance. Uh, the study here basically is showing that the, um, the coagulation defect, which is found in about 70 to 80% of patients where the body lays down that fibrin and chronic fatigue syndrome causes thyroid resistance. So treatment with heparin and LDN Again, almost all chronic fatigue syndrome patients are low thyroid. Combination, again, of pituitary hypothalamic dysfunction, T4 to T3 conversion, poor transport into the cell, and basically thyroid resistance. LDN is potentially beneficial for these patients, but it increases T3 levels in the cell. And here's another marker that's typically not used a lot for thyroid levels. So the SHBG is produced in the liver in response to two things, basically the thyroid level and the estrogen level. So if you have an individual, say a woman who's normally menstruating, has an SHBG lower than 70, you know she's low thyroid. So, and here the study showed that SHBG in, uh, was 24 in hypothyroid uh, women, 43 in new thyroid, 153 in hyper. Uh, and then older women, 37, 69, 115. So it's a very good marker to look at tissue level of thyroid. So SHBG will increase with the use of LDN or the administration of T3 in normal individuals, but not those with thyroid resistance. So it's, a other, it's another way of diagnosing thyroid resistance in that if you give thyroid and SHBG doesn't go up, you know there's a thyroid resistance. And because one, when you're taking thyroid orally, it goes first pass through the liver. So someone on thyroid should have a high SHBG. If they don't, I would, you need to reassess the patient and see if they need more thyroid. So, LDN can be effective for autoimmune thyroiditis, which is as expected, but it also potentially improves the tissue level of thyroid, which is actually a much more common uh, problem uh, from any uh, inflammation. Again, it improves the thyroid resistance due to reverse, uh, reduced T4, T3 conversion or impaired thyroid transport. So it's, it's just showing to be a mainstay, again, we talked about for the chronic fatigue syndrome patients, and now you can see all these other conditions that have actually low thyroid and it's going to help uh, get the thyroid into the cells. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, linda, L-I-N-D-A, at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.